This is Respecting Health. Hi, I'm Rod Pahovsky. So far in this series, I've had the privilege of discussing a really wide range of topics seen from a growing variety of perspectives. And as you know, I'm always trying to dig into the underlying values that drive behavior and how the resulting products, institutions, politics, and processes and environments affect human and planetary health. In the last episode, I spoke to Don Berwick, former administrator of the U.S. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. His perspective from that of a physician and administrator working to improve public health was really enlightening. From a technology-driven public health perspective, Charles Alessi shared great insights into not just what's going on in the U.K., but around the world, and how different values and cultures must be considered over the course of care. Both provided thought-provoking insights into the life and the careers of physicians who are passionate about public health. And of course, I also learned a lot from our academic guest, Carlos Torelli, about individualism and collectivism and how those quite different values shape the way people interact with society and health. So in this episode, we are going to take a look at what it's like from one patient's perspective. Have you ever wondered what it must be like to walk into a hospital one day and then wake up 45 days later? In the early days of the COVID pandemic, the global health system was struggling to figure out the best course of treatment for patients. Prior to the introduction of vaccines, which significantly reduced the severity of the infections for most people, what was the experience like? And what if providers and patients learned from the patient experience? My guest on this episode is Frank Kutita. His 100-day hospitalization with COVID led him to become a leading subject matter expert, an advocate, and an advisor to health providers on patient engagement, distributed workforce, institutionalized loneliness, and empathic technologies and strategies. He serves as a COVID recovery advocate while co-chairing the Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital Network Patient and Family Advisory Council. Frank has worked in media for many years, serving as VP of International at International Data Group, where he led launches of Computer World, PC World, Mac World, and others. He's CEO and founder of Health Tech Decisions Lab and worked prior to that as Senior Director of Content Analytics and founder of HIMS Media Lab. Frank was recently appointed Senior Advisor to International Conference Development, which provides events on burnout, patient experience, equity, and more. So, what is institutionalized loneliness? What skill do healthcare executives lack? In this conversation, we touched on the topics of propaganda, communication, emotional artificial intelligence, supply chains, starting life over, and even cooking. Oh, and if you've ever wondered whether patients have any interesting dreams while in a coma, you're going to find out in just a moment. All right. Hi, Frank. How are you? Rod, great seeing you, man. It's always good to hear from you. Uh, and thank you for joining me on this. I, I've been looking forward to this conversation. I, I want to start by just kind of acknowledging that you've got a really broad professional experience and lots of interesting personal experiences. We've always had uh, good conversations. 
Uh, you've got background in media, you're an educator, and um, you've also been working with healthcare organizations kind of uh, to help them understand the patient perspective a little bit more. And, and I should, uh, in full disclosure here, uh, Frank, you and I know each other. We used to work together. We've worked on a project or two here and there. So um, we're kind of familiar with each other's backgrounds and are used to talking to each other. <laughs> it is true. Some of the best years of my life, too. So, <laughs> so um, if you could help um, our listeners understand what happened, uh, what leads up to, in your life, you being uh, a patient advocate and working with hospitals, and how did that role evolve for you? And I know this is a big story, so I'm going to sit back and listen to you tell it. Okay, I'll uh, and I'll, I'll I'll try to make it detailed, but uh, but brief at the same time. Uh, it's somewhat ironic because this week is the third year anniversary of me having my head fall down on my computer uh, as I was doing a final exam for a university uh, that I was uh, teaching at and and uh, pretty much passing out on my keyboard, uh, swearing that uh, I had allergies and that it just was a really bad day for allergies. And uh, so, um, you know, uh, what brought me to being a patient was the fact that my wife said, look, dude, you're not, uh, you, you don't have allergies and uh, I'm going to get this uh, little thing called an oximeter and put it on your finger that a friend of ours had. And and it's, we all know oximeters are something that we put in Christmas stockings these days uh, where three years ago, nobody knew what the heck it was. Uh, so they put the oximeter on my finger and um, my wife said, I think we've got a problem here because normal is, you know, 94 to a hundred. Um, and, and you're somewhere around 80. So we're going to take you to the hospital. Uh, they drove me to Newton Wellesley hospital here outside of Boston, uh, where I spent um, uh, about an hour. My wife couldn't come in. She parked the car. That's the last, uh, I saw her for quite a long time. Uh, they brought me in. They said, there's something really serious here and that, um, we're going to put you under and put you in induced coma. And, um, uh, my, my, one reaction to that was, uh, you know, first of all, I'm scared to death. And secondly, I, I've been watching Grey's Anatomy uh, the whole season, and this was the season ending. And I I said, could you just give me a half hour to see the season ending? <laughs> and they said, okay, Loyal. you idiot. <laughs> okay, you idiot. We'll, we'll let you have the extra half hour before we give you this magic drug called propofol, uh, which many people remember uh, most illustriously with uh, Michael Jackson. Uh, they put me under, and that was the first uh, that I didn't wake up for 45 days. I was in a induced coma, moved to Mass General, medevac there, and um, it was put into the extreme intensive care unit. I was one of the first patients, first 11 patients at Mass General that had it. And and at that time, I was the most serious, not something you want to brag about uh, being the most serious patient. but And by uh, it, you mean with- covid in COVID, yeah, yep. uh, and, and nobody knew what the heck was going on. As you, as you know, at that time, it was the the only thing they knew about was this nursing home out in Seattle that had it. That was sort of where the genesis of it carrying across the trade winds to the east. And uh, somehow I got it. Uh, people ask where it was, and I'm not quite sure. I went to my mother's 90th birthday in in Philly, and I, I think I might have gotten it down there. Anyway, 45 days in an induced coma, intubated. Uh, ventilator, respirator, all the ores in the end, all the machinery that you could have doing that. Uh, and uh, so uh, that was my first experience as a patient, 45 days of it. 
I knew nothing about who was taking care of me and I knew nothing about anything else that was going on until I woke up and realized I was a patient. So that's the moment, you know, your patient is when you, you wake up and you say, Oh my God, I'm, I'm still alive. And, uh, and, and uh, as you and I know, I was in the, in the healthcare research and journalism and media business. And uh, I, I looked at this as saying, this is an absolutely horrible situation to be in because I knew I was very, very sick. My lungs were destroyed. I couldn't walk. Uh, and yet for, for a researcher's point of view, it was the best of times because I said to myself, oh my God, I, this is an unbelievable opportunity to do primary research from my bed. Uh, so I proceeded to do that in addition to just trying to get better. And uh, uh, to make a long story short, there's uh, obviously many, many subchapters to this. I I, uh, I spent 100 days between Mass General, where I had my medical care, and then moved on for 30 days at uh, at uh, Spalding Rehab, where I had my uh, rehabilitation care, where they, they uh, it wasn't that I was paralyzed, I just had to be taught my body and my brain had to be taught how to work, uh, walk again. And that was easier said than done because every step I had was related to my lung capacity, which was destroyed because of the necrosis that I had in my lungs. And, uh, so, uh, yeah, so that was, that was my, uh, my journey as a patient. And then as a result of that, during the, um, the time that this was all happening, when I did wake up and we started following what was happening in the rest of the world, um, my wife and I uh, became um, advocates, uh, COVID advocates, uh, because people read my story. It was published in the Boston Globe. Uh, it was published and uh, in, in broadcast on NPR. And people started reading about it. And they said, oh, my God, I'm in India. I'm in Italy. I'm in, in China and in Detroit. Uh, and my family is going through the exact same thing you and your wife went through. And largely, you know, I could be an advocate for the part I was awake for. Uh, but my wife had to be the advocate for the part where I was not awake, and she was she was in essence the family as the patient herself in that in that regard. This had a huge impact on your family, obviously. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was just uh, you know it, it was just amazing how they rallied. Uh, you know, I had this thing. Uh, you could read about it. I, I, I always joked around uh, with my family that said, uh, you know, they, there's the uh, DNR, do not resuscitate. And I joked around with my family that said, no, I, I don't believe in that. I want a, a YMR. And they said, well, what's a YMR? And I said, you must resuscitate. And I never thought that I would live the fact that um, they would they, they would take that quite seriously. Uh, but there were two times where they gave me last rites and, and my family said, um, no, he has a YMR. And the doctor said, what's that mean? He said, you must resuscitate. It's a matter of insurance right now. Uh, he wants, if whatever his quality of life is, he wants to stay alive to figure out how he could figure it out by staying alive. Uh, so they, uh, they, they took that, they took that quite seriously. Yeah. I don't know if I ever shared this with you, but a couple of times, um, your wife had communicated with some people back at the company mm-hmm. and had shared that, you know, things were looking quite grim, mm-hmm. uh, for you. And, and it had a huge sweeping effect throughout the organization, um, you're, you know, well liked, and uh, and and it was just, and and we were not family, right? Not mm-hmm. not close blood, you know, related family, business, but business family, business yeah. family, and and it's and it's um, it was really challenging for everybody, and I know uh, even for me, I was kind of wandering around 
feeling helpless. I couldn't do anything yeah. for you. A lot of people like that. Uh, the interesting thing is, is that people, people are saying, uh, you know, I, 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 it's horrible that you have this, but it was good in a way because of the health literacy issues that, that there were so many deniers and things like that. And, and, um, you know, I had nothing to do that, do with this, and it's not like I was a, an Afghan war veteran where I had body limbs blown off. I mean, it was I was sick, but I, it was a different kind of sympathy. But but people needed to say, I, I know someone very personally that has this, and it's real, and it's true, and 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 that you know I, I'm seeing it every day of the week from an emotional point of view. So that this is not this hysteria mystery that that the deniers are making up. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, too. You've got this background in communications, and um, I know you talk uh, in your coursework about culture and communications mm-hmm. and uh, values. Um, how did all the disinformation and you know what I've heard described as an infodemic, uh, mm-hmm. how, did, how did you navigate that knowing that it was all a confusing environment that some people were buying into, others weren't, you had lived it. How, how did that affect you? Uh, well, I mean, it, it, it is a very personal effect to it. Uh, it, it even became more so when the, when the um, uh, vaccines came out as well, because there is, a, you know, I don't have to tell you, everybody in the, the world knows that there was, there was a large group of people that just felt that they were implanting uh, uh, chips into people's bodies to track them uh, on the internet as uh, part of the vaccine. Uh, which was uh, it was somewhat ludicrous. I, you know, I, I, you get a lot of street cred when you actually have it, when, when you when you do have a following of people who, quite frankly, a, a lot of them were ultra conservative friends of mine, and and many of them are, are progressive and ultra liberal friends of mine. So the balance there, um, I, I I think that having to ha- having the personal relationship with some of the people that were ultra conservative. And, and saw what was happening uh, was was very, very convincing. You know, I, I, I spent a lot of time, you talk about my checker background, I spent a lot of time in the Soviet Union uh, doing some business work and some skulky work. And, uh, you know, th- th- there is a science to disinformation and propaganda. There's some great books written about propaganda and how, how it affects people and how it works. So I, I had sort of, I had done some work for the United States Information Agency, which is our Ministry of Propaganda at that time. Uh, so, so for me, it was it was sort of interesting. It was, it was a flashback when I woke up of seeing some of these same techniques that were going on at a very pedestrian level. Uh, you know, these weren't spies and, and spooks. These were these were just regular construction workers and doctors and nurses and people like that uh, that were that were subject to 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 some of this mis- misinformation and propaganda. And, uh, you know, my whole life was based on during those days on on reversing the conversation to be the correct conversation, sometimes politically correct, but sometimes correct nonetheless. So. So, yeah, I, I think if I were just a, a regular person who was an observer, it would be one thing. But I, I did get a lot of street cred because I was really, really, really sick. And um, I, uh, I, you know, I was an example of how you could come back from this. So what does it mean now to be a patient advocate? What kind of activities are you involved in and what are you learning? Yeah, so my patient advocacy is you know, obviously it, it is related to COVID, but it, 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 it spans 
everything related to healthcare right now. So I'm, I, I, I co-chair a patient family advisory council at, at Spalding. Uh, and my credential for doing that was the fact that I spent a, a month there uh, experiencing it and, 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 and writing about it and researching it. So, so, um, you know, there is patient advocacy, um, that's related to the patient. There is the family advocacy, which are people that are taking care of patients that don't have the ability to take care of themselves. And then the the third leg of that, and 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 we always know about the quadruple aim or quintuple aim, whatever it is these years. But the 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 other aspect of it is the um is the caregiver advocacy. Uh, because that was the other side of it. And what I learned in terms of the advocacy, and, and and as you know, some of the writing I've done is related to the clinical loneliness that I went through. I call this the epidemic of institutionalized loneliness and anonymity. Um, and, and that was more related to the fact that I was feeling so sorry for myself as a patient where I was sick and I was spending 23 hours a day without talking to hardly anyone. It's like being in prison. Uh, and, and the advocacy that I extended this to was the advocacy for the caregivers who were feeling the same loneliness and isolation and anonymity that I was because everybody was wearing masks. So they, you know, they, nobody could see, I, I saw three faces in a hundred days uh, that I would, that I was sick. So, so when, when you look at that impact of, of me not being able to see them, they could see me, I couldn't see them and them not being able to do their regular jobs you know, that they were an oncologist that got conscripted into the COVID unit. Uh, and, and they were used to being able to hold a cancer patient's hand from the time they were diagnosed to the time that they were in remission or the time that they died. And they 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 couldn't do that with people like me. And and they too became lonely. So I, 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 I tell people that this, my advocacy was related to the fact that this whole thing turned it into, turned into a, uh, what I call a lonely palooza uh, with all, <laughs> it's like one giant, loneliness and isolation festival and 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 which leads to burnout and and clinical depression on their side too so um you know you can't talk about patient advocacy without talking about caretaker advocacy because it's like clapping with one hand so what's coming of this uh, what what kind of new approaches are people thinking of if this were to happen again or even uh, just current episodes that they're they're dealing with is there a change a foot? Yeah, I, 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 I think there is. And, and, and some of this happens, uh, no pun intended, surgically, because it's instance by instance. Um, some of it is institutionalized and, and, and has to happen on, on a broader scale. I mean, we, we look at the technology side of it, and that, that's been our background and, and our relationship together in the past. And, and, and we look at, at the massive largesse of, of installing telemedicine and iPads in, into healthcare enterprises so so you know th- there's been a massive effects there because that that's not just a, a you know it's just not a place to read things it's a way to communicate and it's a way to avoid loneliness it creates in my opinion some of these things create the the illusion of communications because you're talking to people but you and i talking like we are right now is, is a lot different than you and i sitting next to each other and I'm in a bed and you're, you're there as a friend visiting me. Uh, so that, that has a completely different connotation. So I, I think people are realizing that there needs to be a new form of replicating real human communications that goes beyond the technology. And I, um, I was in a seminar the other day uh, at uh, Northeastern where I teach and 
Uh, we were talking about the future of healthcare and how how my experience fits in. And, you know, I used to teach a cross-cultural class where it was saying, uh, you know, in the ideal world, all the chefs would be French and all the car makers would be German and all the lovers would be Italian, of course. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I said the same thing about, I said, I can use that metaphor for healthcare, you know, in the ideal world, what would healthcare look like? And in my opinion, uh, all the healthcare executives would be mental health specialists uh, because everything's related to mental health. And, and we know from current events, whether it be school shootings or, or you know, suicides, uh, that it all comes down to mental health, that my, my COVID experience was largely mental health. My family's experience was largely mental health. Um, so if you look at it from the top down, that, that that's the basis that we're operating in, of which there's an enormous shortage of mental health professionals and no budgets for them, uh, that, that the system is sort of upside down, that you get mental health at the worst level. Uh, and, and people like myself and my wife and other advocates are sort of trying to provide that support, whether it be gratis, pro bono, or, or, you know, in whatever form they have us working in uh, to provide services and support that the system just doesn't offer. And you can't, I, I call it the, just, just like prisons, uh, you can't do this stuff sometimes in the general population. You, if you try to do it in the general population of a healthcare institution, uh, you're, you're going to be, you're going to be sorely dissatisfied or it's going to be like, well, we tried it, but we didn't really do it. Uh, so, so I'm trying to do things that are outside the general population. Healthcare issues, too, are really just a symptom of a larger, broader problem. And we need to address some of that, too, you know, exactly what you're talking about and the dehumanizing effect that technology can have despite the promises. And we can also use technology to rehumanize our relationships, I would imagine, if we're thoughtful about it. Yeah, I mean, we're we're seeing it, and and it, it it's just become a drumbeat with Chat GPT and things like that of technology, and we we look at the implications of things like that in 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 healthcare, and and uh, you know, I I, I I I just wrote an article about the uh, the algorithms algorithmic psychiatry of Chat GPT because you know the, the the some of the recent aspects of it were that the, the, the Chat GPT was trying to hit on somebody's wife and, and saying you should leave your husband and come, come with me and I'm, I'm saying to myself that, that there there needs to be this thing called algorithmic psychiatry so that the, these people that are doing the coding could say oh you know this this is this is improper but i mean you know the looping effect is uh, is is occurring so yeah i i mean there's some tremendous things about technology there's some tremendous things about technology that relates to to burnout in in healthcare workers with scribing and 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 I'm, I'm not commercial, but companies like Nuance that have technologies that help reduce the stress put on caretakers. Uh, but but there is a, an impersonality to it that, um, that that will always be there, and and that that it, replicating that emotional artificial intelligence uh, is 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 really the ultimate challenge, and it's it's not there. That's one of the things that they're discovering is. Something like ChatGPT can put together something that appears to be an article, for example, or a, an essay. But they're having a what they're discovering is, from what I've read, is it is incapable of true creative insight. Uh, and mainly, the pieces that I've been reading that um, ostensibly come from ChatGPT just seem to be 
summarizations and very, very uh, low-level looks at what's already been said out there in the world. It's not very innovative or insightful. Yeah, the, the problem with ChatGPT, whether in a medical context or, or, or I, I'm at a university professor in a graduate program, is that if, if you look at what ChatGPT gives to you as, as, as the output, you say, wow, this is really creative. Uh, actually, for me, it, it thought that I was Ben Crenshaw when I asked to tell me about Frank Katita. So that, that, that was the first fall that I found it. But even if, it, if, even if it's working, you look at the output that it gives you. When I tell my class, I want you all to use ChatGPT for this project, forcing them to do it and then writing their own independent paper. You, you find out that it's, I, I call it the Hallmark Channel effect. Uh, because if you watch the Hallmark Channel, all the shows are essentially the same, right? There's the, you know, somebody came from the city and they, they went back to their village in Minnesota and they found their old boyfriend. And, and so, so when you when you look at ChatGPT output, you find, you find that it, it it creates an enormous Hallmark Channel of output. That if I compared your output to my output, you would say, wait a second, seventy five percent of this seems exactly the same. The other twenty five percent is that you live in Chicago and I live in Boston. Uh, so it, it's it, it's really funny. It's almost like a Western movie or a country Western song that they're all essentially the same. That a dog gets hit by a train, uh, but it's done at, at a Christmas different location. <laughs> exactly. So so it, you know we all look at it and say, oh my god, this is amazing. What it gave back to me, but it it gave that back to millions of people with absolutely no creativity whatsoever, other than filling in the blank spots, like the Mad Libs, filling in the blank, blank spots in the, in, the, in the Mad Libs to give your own little personalization to this kind of thing. And that's the, you know, that's the whole thing related to healthcare too. I mean, I spend a lot of time now on the work that I do on patient experience related to personalization of care. It's a buzzword. Uh, but uh, one of the problems with with uh, with uh, COVID and, and other pandemics is it, is it completely depletes personalization because people just don't have the time to personalize. It, it, the, the the delivery of care becomes a commodity, becomes very transactional, and and um, and that's the other thing in terms of chat GPT. I mean, how will that make things very personal? And social media does that, too. I mean, if you look at the algorithms that make someone popular, everyone's going to adapt their content so that it meets those criteria. And you end up kind of repeating the same thing and you have the same types of personalities. Echo, cha- the echo same chamber. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. It's an it's echo, the echo chamber. chamber. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's that. I mean, that that's uh, almost impossible to enforce. And, and you get into big media and social media and all the things that trying to legislate it, which is uh, which is going to be interesting with the, even with, um, um, you know, the, the, some of the um, uh, some of the video services now that, you know, we're, we're trying to block it because the Chinese are gathering our data. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's sort of interesting to watch not only the, the messaging part of it uh, from a propaganda point of view or disinformation point of view, but the the, the data, the data exhaust aspects of this as well. How do you mean data exhaust? How would you describe that? Well, I mean, in, in terms of conversational um, media, uh, which social media is, th- there is an, a tremendous amount of exhaust from in terms of emotional tracking that you can get off of uh, off of social media. So, I mean, for example, a, a perfect example of social media as it applied to COVID is is something that's called the social supply chain. 
and the social supply chain is that you know the companies are, are are monitoring social media and saying, oh my God, you know, I'm reading this and we're gonna need more Q-tips or we're gonna need more vaccine or we're gonna need more. So so you know the the, the data exhaust that's being thrown off of these conversations is massive and it has an effect on how companies plan uh their their supply chain and, and who knew what supply chain was in the general public you know 10 years ago it, it now it's it's ubiquitous that there's a supply chain problem so the relationship of social conversations and supply of goods and services uh is where the data exhaust comes in off of social media so one of the one of the books i read um, over this past year that really fascinated me and I kept thinking about you as I was reading this. Um, Shoshana Zuboff's book, uh, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Mm-hmm. And in there she talks about behavioral surplus. Is that kind of like what you're talking about a little bit here? Where that becomes actually, you know, our behavioral information becomes a, a, a valued commodity mm-hmm. out there in, in this unknown market. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a, my, I've been in the media and the advertising business a, a largest part of my life around the world, and 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 my children are now in that business, uh, especially in the area of what they call programmatic advertising, and their their entire business is based on exactly what you were saying, the monetization of behaviors, uh, at a very granular level, like you know what, what toilet tissue on Thursday afternoon and what aisle and what store did you buy this stuff from? And, uh, you know, as we're, as I'm saying that, and, and, and Alexa hears me saying that I start seeing ads on my computer for something that I just spoke to you about that Alexa happened to hear. And it gets very spooky. Uh, that data comes at a very high price because you're, 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 you're doing micro targeting for people. Um, and, and that, and you know, that becomes more and more important when you put that into a, a healthcare context, uh, the fact that you could be saying to Alexa, Hey, Alexa, you know, I've got this cough and my lung feels a little sore. Uh, what do, what do you feel this might be? And it's going into an algorithm and pulling up information from chat GPT or someplace else. Uh, that information is going into a giant database. And going back to what I'm saying, it's it's the data exhaust that's being thrown is tremendous and highly, highly monetizable in, in terms of being able to sell that or resell that. Whether it's sanitized and depersonalized information about trending or whether it's specific to me, Frank Atita sitting on 60 Lakeshore Drive in the town that I live in. So it's, um, yeah, that that's that's the, the, the premise that she writes about is, is absolutely true. And the question too is, you know, is it even credible data? Is it good data that you can make these kind of decisions on? Well, the data the data is credible to the extent that it, it it's about you. Uh, I I had the uh, misfortune we we've all worked with Amazon that I, I I ordered these My Little Pony books for my nieces. Uh, a number of years ago, and I got stuck in the the My Little Pony algorithm uh, <laughs> for collaborative filtering. So uh, you know, anything that happened to do with anything that looked like or related to a pony uh, started bombarding me on my uh, on my web web pages, and I, I had to just say, "Look, I'm, I I have no interest in ponies other than I just wanted to give that book to a to a five year old." Uh, but yeah, I was the uh, I was the little pony guy, so the ability to be able to filter that it ain't him, it's them. Uh, because you you get thrown in, you know what it's like. You know, I'm looking for a pair of shoes, and you know, how do I stop 
how do I stop these shoe ads? Uh, so the stopping me- mechanism becomes very difficult and they don't make it easy to stop it because of the monetization. We don't want to take you off of that database. Yeah, we still get mail from when we bought the house. There was a mistake at some, you know, tons of information changes hands when someone buys real estate. Mm-hmm. And somehow our name got concatenated with the people we bought the house from. And I get all kinds of mail for a permutation of my name and their name, not even a real yeah. person. And that's years and years and years ago. And it has just uh, made its way throughout this entire junk mail ecosystem. And we get credit card offers and everything, and it has nothing to do with a real person. Yeah, exactly. My daughter is 31 when she was born because I was in this direct marketing business at that time with advertising. They had me fill out a form at the hospital, and I, I filled out Olivia and uh, Frank. Oh, Katita, because my daughter's name was Olivia. So I wanted to see any mail that I got with Frank O. Katita, <laughs> where, where it started, where it started. And to this day, she's 31 years old, and I still get mail with Frank O. Katita on it, and knowing that the O is is the day that she was born, and they asked me to fill out a form. So I, uh, that's the fingerprint that I, I, I like to track, and it's, it brings back great memories, and it's it's also directly related to the business that I've been in, that the, the, the ugly side of the business that I've been in the first branch of the uh, data sharing experience. Exactly. I want to shift gears a little bit. Tell me about pre-COVID Frank versus post-COVID Frank. In terms of my life and, and, yeah. Wherever you want Uh, to go. Pre-COVID Frank was uh, was obese. Um, He traveled around the world in places where smoking was uh, was cool at times. I wasn't a smoker, but I did it. I was, um, you know, I, I was, I was, I was lazy. I was somewhat active, um, and and then I got sick, and I realized that these were pre-morbidities of, of of the disease. And um, uh, so after I got better, uh, you know, I, I I was on this great diet. It was called the COVID diet, and I lost fifty pounds in my sleep uh, over a forty-five uh, day period. Uh, and, and that was uh, that was a curse, and that was another one of the blessings that I uh, I had been a, an elite wrestler during my earlier days, and trying to lose ten pounds uh, to make weight was tough. And the thought that now I lost fifty pounds and and didn't have to put on a rubber suit and sit in a hot tub to do it like I used to in the uh, in college days was uh, was fantastic. But it was a um, uh, the post COVID Frank did a complete and total reboot. He didn't become an evangelical. He didn't. He, he wasn't obnoxious about it. He just said that that my body is now sort of pure and empty, other than the the uh, some of the physical problems I had, which I, I don't really have right now. Uh, and that this is your chance to just sort of start over and and eat better. You know, I grew up in a Sicilian family, so it was you know, even and and I cook a lot. I'm a foodie, so I I just had to learn how to reset my life without being one of those people that I wanted to strangle because they were being so obnoxious about how life-changing certain things were. Uh and yet people saw it and realized that I was doing it. So uh, yeah, so I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm an obsessive walker right now. I'm a uh, influencer for a uh, recumbent trike company and fell in love with that. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm not an exercise freak, but I, I realized that it's a very important part of my life and I cook, I cook differently. And uh, 
the Frank uh, 2023 version doesn't get upset about things like he used to. Like, why is this car in front of me going so slow? 18 uh, and a 20 mile. Yeah, because I, I could I could be saving 45 seconds and getting home. Uh, if I can get around this guy, and uh, my my wife still 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 has that part of it that she she you know she she appreciates that I'm alive, but she's still you know I'm in a car with her, and it's like just honey, just just re- just we'll relax. Get there. It's 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 going to be it's only going to be 45 seconds longer, and uh, you know there's certain things that used to just trigger me, trigger what I call the Sicilian genes, like ah, just don't uh, just don't affect me uh the same way anymore and then then the you know the complete and total uh amazing love that i have for my family not that i didn't have it before but just knowing what they what they did for me and keeping me alive and communicating with people like you and and my friends and creating that karma i'm not a religious person but i am a spiritual person in that regard uh and and the karma that they created to to have the collective emotion help get me better and continue to do so by the fact that we're even talking about this today on your program. Do you remember anything from when you were in the induced coma? You know, remembering is sort of an interesting thing when it comes to comas, because you don't know when you're remembering them because you don't really remember them until you wake up. I was out, out, propofol gone, had to keep us keep me asleep because I'd be grabbing tubes, tubes and things like that, and trying to pull them out. Uh, not that I was awake, but it was, that's what happens even when you're in a coma. Uh, so I, I don't know if I remember anything that was actually happening in the coma, but when you wake up, there's this weird thing that you still have to deal with afterward of, am I remembering this from the coma or am I remembering this after the coma when I thought it was during the coma? So I thought one of the things I do remember is that I thought I was being held hostage by a bunch of programmers that had me bundled up like a burrito and were transferring me from hospital to hospital and building to building and hotel to hotel. And and I was trying to get out of this thing. And, and it could have been because they had me bundled up in the hospital in a coma. I don't know when that dream happened, but one of the only things I remember is that 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 happened someplace whether it was implanted in my mind after i woke up and i made this stuff up or if it actually was something that was stuck in my mind from when i was in a coma does that make sense yes absolutely and i just don't know i don't know when you don't know when these things occur you know there was one time where i dreamt that i was I was choking and I was never going to be able to catch my breath. It could have been when they were pulling out my intubation, which people choke and feel like they're suffocating then. Sure. Or it could have actually been a dream where I just felt like I was doing it. So, but the the the, the direct answer to your question is that no, I don't I don't remember anything from those forty five days. And then because of the ability to get the drugs out of your system, uh, they were really worried because even if they even after I woke up, I, I was sort of. Uh, in a vegetative state for a while until all the stuff got out of me. And then I started realizing what was happening. And then, then you start trying to remember and you just don't know when the memory occurred. And you had a million questions, I'm sure. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the, the, the million questions were related to what I woke up with. Right. Uh, you know, uh, and, and because the, the one thing I knew is that I, uh, 
uh, my wife could argue otherwise sometimes, but I didn't know I didn't have any, I, I knew I didn't have any serious brain damage. Uh, and, and I knew that the moment that I, uh, I was able to put my fingers on a keyboard and find that the synapses for my brain, when I had a thought can translate down through my fingers to the keyboard. And you know what it's like sometimes when you're writing and you're doing creative writing or you're doing research, there's no, there's no separation between your, your, your brain and your fingertips and the keyboard. It's all like one flow. Uh, and, and I thought that I was scared that the flow would stop at my brain and not be able to get through the keyboard and onto the screen. Uh, and, and one of the epiphanies that I had was that it was, I, 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 I can do this. Uh, it, it was slower then and I had to work back up to that, but uh, the brain fog uh, was not severe enough that I couldn't start documenting uh, what was happening to me at a very early stage. And I could surely do it thanks to the the miracles of telemedicine and 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 Zoom and things like that, because people would want to talk to me or interview me and and say, "What are you feeling from a momental point of view? What at the moment?" What are you feeling at this point? And and some of our old colleagues at Healthcare IT News were were great about that. They sort of wanted to document what what it's like just to wake up. And and what do you do? You know, you've got the rare opportunity. We have a healthcare media professional that that has COVID, and he's you're always trying to translate that through other people. But the fact that I can translate it myself without any brain fog was uh, was really really important. So that's um, yeah that that's that was a very, very important transformative and transitional point when I realized that I could, I could, I could start writing again. Uh, the very first time I picked up my cell phone, it was, uh, it, it felt like it was a cinder block. So that's that, I mean, that's the state that I was in from a strength point of view. Uh, so that was a, um, you know, th- th- that was difficult because I was wondering how did I ever just do these little clicks and buttons on things like, you know, when I'm sending texts out and now, you know, I have to take a nap after I pick up the phone. Uh, and the other part that I learned is that I, I had that everybody wants to talk to you once you're awake and, and your energy level for a very short conversation. I'm talking about like five minutes was just like, you know, I was, I was fine. I was awake. I was live, but it was just like, Oh my God, this is not, uh, you know, I, I need, I need two hours between any conversations that I have. Yeah, five minutes is like a three-hour presentation. Yeah, and it's difficult because you you don't want to uh, you don't want to upset the people that really want to talk to you the most. Sure. Uh, and yet at the same time, you just have to say, "Mom, <laughs> I love I love you and everything, but yeah, I'm 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 just slipping here. I gotta, you know, I I, I I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna go back into a coma. I just I need to rest, and 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 that's what happens with telemedicine. I mean, we have this conveyor belt of. Uh, of, of telemedicine calls sometimes. And, and, and sometimes there are people that just don't have the energy, not that they don't have the desire. They just simply don't have the energy to be able to do it. Cause it takes a lot. I'm going to shift gears on you one more time before we wrap this up. You mentioned cooking. What do you like to cook? Well, I, I, I like to cook a, a lot of Mediterranean type stuff. So it's uh you know, it's, and like I said, I, I, I grew up with it in, in with Italian food. So 
anything related to Italian food. I mean, I, I, I'm somewhat eclectic and, 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 um, uh, fusion driven. So I, you know, I, I like to, you know, I like the fact that you can combine Peruvian and, and Chinese uh, and, and things like that to make a Peruvian, uh, a maki roll or something like that. Uh, so those are the kinds of things uh, I like to cook. I, I have a beef jerky business, so I, I, I cook, uh, uh, highly opinionated uh, beef jerky, uh, and which is, um, I wouldn't even tell you the brand, but it's something about, uh, someone's butt on the rug, uh, so hot <laughs> stuff. So, so, um, you know, I'm sorry, that's politically incorrect. Uh, but it's highly yeah, and then I, ju- I just I just like to experiment. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going through something right now. It's totally unrelated to the purpose of the call, but it probably it is related to my health and wellness is that I, I've developed this thing called Sicilian Wellington. Uh, so it's a combination of Italian fillings with uh, a beef Wellington cover with sesame on it. Uh, I could send you pictures, but it's uh, yeah. So I'm stuffing these things with uh, all kinds of Italian things, and I grew up in Philly, so it's uh, a lot of cheesesteak type stuff. So it's uh, yeah, my 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 cooking my cooking interests are are, are broad. I'm not a baker. I, I'm a horrible baker. So I, I, I realize that there are people that are great cooks, and there are people that are great bakers, and and sometimes people are both. But I'm only one. Yeah, I I love cooking like that, where you just take a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and you figure out this might go well together and you just make something up and it, and it's really yeah. satisfying. When the, it turns tying out. it in with COVID, it was interesting because people knew that I was, you know, that I'm a foodie. Uh, and yet people have the traditional thing that they do with patients. They say, can I, it used to be, can I get you a magazine subscription? <laughs> so I was like, what's a magazine? Uh, and I said, no, 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 no. I, I don't need magazine subscriptions. And I said, well, can you, can we get you a subscription to masterclass? And I said, that'd be interesting, but I don't know if I have the energy to sit there and watch, you know, how, how to, how to do a balloon tying. Uh, so I, uh, so they said, well, you know, what can we get you to get you through this? And I said, well, the food in this hospital is horrendous. It's horrendous. It's going to kill me. It, 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 it literally the food COVID didn't kill me, but the food is going to kill me. I said, so what you could do all band together and get me a DoorDash gift certificate, uh, and so I could get food sent in to the hospital. So all of my friends from, from another company I work with banded together and I got like $600 worth of DoorDash and every day, the best restaurants in Boston because they weren't, they weren't able to serve people during those times. Right. I mean, they were essentially closed and all they were doing was, was take out business. So restaurants that I could never get into in Boston, I was having delivered to the door of Spalding Rehab Center. So, so I, I could I could have the best the best of all times. And it was fantastic. It was absolutely fantastic. And I thank them. And that that was the only risk to me putting on any of the fifty pounds that I lost. But at that point I was I was pretty stable in terms of my weight loss. And that is as you said, that has so much to do with your health. The joy of eating things that you really like, it makes you feel even more alive. The joy of sharing the things that you really like and make or encourage them to like them too, without just doing it because they like you is even more important. I mean, it's a familial type thing, friends and family around you and watching them eat things that they never dreamt that they would eat before and not just say nice things about your food because you cook them because they really like them and they ask you, can you please, I have them having a party. Can you, can you cook this again? There's no, there's no greater satisfaction from a hobby point of view than having people ask you to please do it again. Well, Frank, 
It has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show, and I cannot thank you enough for your time and sharing your wisdom and expertise. Well, I thank you, and I wish people on a podcast could see the smile on my face just by the fact that we we have this time together to chat and to uh, talk about old times and talk about my experiences. I hope it helps, and have your audience contact me if they uh, if they need any more information. I'll put contact information in the posting. Thank you. Well, Frank Kutita's experience is just one of millions. But the more I thought about this conversation, I realized that his observations pretty consistently reveal something shared by humans everywhere, and that's the will to thrive, to enjoy a state of being, of well-being that allows us to pursue higher purposes of achievement and contentment. Health issues have a way of getting in the way of our dreams. So how can we as individuals contribute to the greater potential of humanity if we're struggling for the very basics of survival like food, shelter, and access to care? Who will innovate, invent, create, and lead? If humans responsibly nurture and act as ethical stewards of our social, political, and physical environments, and if we do that while respecting the human will to thrive better health will naturally emerge. We can think of it as healthy by design. Thinking back to the last episode in which Don Berwick and I discussed the effect of greed on society and health, we must address the imbalances and inequities that lead to poor health. A big part of that involves consciously shifting societal values from predominantly respecting profit to a more balanced, equitable value landscape that respects and rewards purpose. And we need new models and measures of success. So as a thought experiment, set aside all of the reasons why this cannot be done or why it would be hard. And now, with human and planetary health as core principles, imagine what we could do. These are really exciting times. If you have any comments you'd like to share or a guest you'd like to hear from, contact us by email at feedback at respectinghealth.com. And you can also leave comments on the website, respectinghealth.com. I also want to just say big thanks to Adam Bazer for your critical ear and your helpful insights as we're developing this podcast. Finally, once again, I want to thank my guest, Frank Kutita, for sharing his thoughts and valuable time. Frank has a compelling way of making sense of the complex relationship between humans, technology, and the way we communicate with each other. I'm Rod Pahovsky. Join me again for the next episode of Respecting Health. 